right to the microphone in the center. David Boyer is pitching to Reveal today. David Boyer is a writer and radio producer. His writing has appeared in the New York Times. He's currently producing a podcast called The Intersection, an audio series that looks at the changing Bay Area through the lens of different street intersections. It's all true. Um, the intersection, I spend uh, like a year plus at an intersection uh, in the Bay Area right now, and um, I try and figure out what's going on there. What's, you know, the first one was in the Tenderloin uh, in San Francisco and trying to figure out, um, you know, what are the different factors, the different motivations, different people that live and work there and how that comes together. This season is uh, in Googleville uh, in Mountain View. And uh, throughout, you know, I've been there now about uh, 16 months, and I met a woman, her name is Roxanne, and she lives in an RV uh, on the street in front of Google. Uh, she is a Google shuttle driver, and she is 61, uh, and has a couple of dogs. And the story is about how that happened. You know, I think we can all agree it's not ideal that somebody is living, somebody who's working full time is living in an RV outside of Google. And so the, over the course of this piece, we would look at a little bit at her situation, but mostly what decisions have been made over the years. Who, you know, it's easy to point a finger at Google, but actually there's Prop 13, there's um, city council where it's seven random people that are deciding, you know, the fate of their, of their city. Um, and so over the course of it, we would look at you know, we would talk to some executives, but also talk to city council people, um, you know, people at the state level that were involved in Prop 13, and try and figure out, you know, because I think the idea ultimately is to come up with some solutions, but, you know, this didn't happen overnight. It happened over a long period of time with a lot of different decisions being made. And so it's sort of tracking those and then, you know, beginning to sort of look at some solutions, but sort of at least understanding and appreciating how complex it is and the web of decisions and not taking the easy way out and saying, it's Google's fault, because, you know, Google, this existed before Google, it will exist after Google. I think what's also interesting in the Bay Area that I'm sure you all see is the number of campers that people are on the street, and that wasn't like that 10 years ago. So this is a newish problem that has its, uh, you know, origins you know, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, probably like 10, 15, 20, you know, and I think that there are probably, in Mountain View specifically, but I'm sure in most cities, uh, discrete decisions that were made. There's a 1967 documentary by K-Ron. Uh, if you haven't seen these, Google, you know, K-Ron, uh, I think Diva, SFU, just remember that. And they have all these documentaries that are from like the 60s, and they would do one a week. 30 minutes, and they did one on the peninsula, which wasn't called Silicon Valley yet. But they were talking about the exact same issues. So I guess in many ways it actually, the, the problems have been there for a long time, just how uh, they express themselves have changed. But one thing that came across in that was uh, they talked to a bunch of city managers, and one said, uh, we, uh, you know, in the next few years, we're probably gonna be, have to become a metropolitan area. You know, the cities don't like that because they have to give up a certain amount of control, but I can't imagine there's any way that this is gonna work unless we actually, you know, metropolize like a New York, because there is no sort of regional powers. Uh, and 50 years later, it never happened, and that's one of the many reasons that uh, there are issues. Do you wanna play the tape? <laughs> what we have to deal with in Mountain View are really the perils of prosperity. And the policies that we've had over the last 40 years to um, bring more jobs to our towns and, and, and encourage growth have really had the unintended consequences of making housing costs very, very high, which in turn causes some people to be displaced and become homeless. And personally, I think it's an ethical issue. I mean, clearly, if you make a mess, it's your job to clean it up, right? It's our responsibility to, to work hard to, to um, fix the things that our policies have created. So, you know, uh, the, I think sort of the rare voice that actually says, we did this and we're going to try and fix it, but how you do that, I think, is part of what the story is. Questions? <laughs> yeah, who was that tape of? Uh, she is a mayor. Uh, and they have a really interesting system where it's, you're not elected mayor, you're elected to the city council, and they swap positions. And then the woman who you would have be your main character, um, has she agreed to this? Have you interviewed her? Uh, she will be in episode <laughs> three of the intersection. So this is, you know, part of this is part of a series uh, that I'm doing that is six episodes on this one intersection. The reason I wanted to sort of work with Reveal is that 
I didn't really push the investigative aspect of it. You know, I was there for so long, I was invested in certain relationships, and really I kind of wanted to paint the picture of what the issues were, but not like hold anyone's feet to the fire. You know, now they're done, and I'm more interested in like, well, how the fuck did this happen? You know, and who made these decisions? And, you know, there are companies, I mean, there are cities now that are bidding to become Amazon's next headquarters. Do they have a sense of what might actually happen with their, Mountain View was an orchard town. There were like, you know, orchards everywhere. And in the 80s, they started to really build up. So I have a lot of tape. Uh, a lot of people have been interviewed, you know, journalists, city council members. Um, but I really want to ask some of the tougher questions that um, were either not answered yet or, you know, Google has refused to talk, period. So hopefully that would be uh, a way to sort of convince them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, so I think what you have right now is like a really good narrative thread, but you don't have much of an investigation as you just, you know, admitted. Yeah. So I, um, to make this into a really good pitch for reveal, what we'd need to know is like, what are those investigative strands that you want to, to follow? Um, what is the, you know, data that you want to look at? So we can say that there's been this crazy growth and the home prices are up and that's sort of like everyone knows that, but can you actually point to that? And can we sure. see where it happened? And can we see, then can we also look at, it, has there been this rise in homelessness that anecdotally you say is happening, but how can we point to that through real uh, data and information? And all of that exists. And, you know, um, you, you know, just in terms of Mountain View, they've just started actually looking at, you know, quantifying how many people are homeless and it, the numbers go up every year. Um, you know, I think a lot of that data exists, you know, and some of it is, is, is woven through the piece. Um, you know, in terms of the strands, I think, you know, there was a guy who I interviewed who was a city planner in the 80s there. And he remembers uh, when the city council was deciding whether or not to allow housing in this one particular area where Google is. He thought they were going to, he had a plan that was built for housing, ready to go. And at the last minute, a city council person swapped their vote and turned, it, turned down housing. And so they then moved on to make an industrial park, which became Google. So I, I want to both sort of, I, I'm interested in the stats and all that, but I also like these really pivotal moments that, you know, where a city makes a decision for a variety of reasons um, and, and what that, you know, what these decisions mean in the long term. Yeah, also, it seems like you're going into it with the premise that Google is evil a little no. bit. No? No. No? It feels that way. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so don't I'm, do I'm curious in your, uh, in your podcast, like, what are the other viewpoints that we've heard? I mean, as someone who lives in the Bay Area now, I moved there from Boston a few years ago. I mean, I'm just shocked by the level of homelessness. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought that it would be less than what you see in Boston, and I think whatever the reasons are, um, it, it's shocking that it's an issue that's so widespread and you see these camps that are just impossible to believe that they actually exist. Um, and I do, like, you know, we talk about Prop 13 a lot. Um, so it would, I, I think, like, to refine the pitch for a reveal, you know, you threw out a lot of things that sure. might be factors, but, like, really trying to uh, narrow the focus a little bit in terms of like what are the key things, the key data points that you want to look at, and then who are the voices, you know, both if Google's not going to talk to you, we need to hear somebody from the tech world, somebody from the city council who says we need this kind of um, investment, and the reason is not just so that they get their say, but so we can challenge them on it. And like, that's what we try to do, like that's what Al Letson tries to do in his interviews all the time. Like, we don't want to have them up there just because, you know, we think we need to have both sides. We want to have them up there so that we can challenge the premise that they're putting forward. So it's, it's really essential not just to be, you know, I, I know Google is tough to get on the record. So like, think about who the other voices are. Sure. Um. Uh, I'll I'll take a, a shot at this, um, which is that I I did hear although you you said you know Google's not evil I did get the same kind of sense um, I think that one thing that would be very important to me is the agency of the person who's living in that trailer it's like why is this person mm -hmm. willing to live in this trailer in front of Google. Um, or, I mean, because a lot of the voices that you're talking about, if you're talking about people who are displaced, those are people who've left the community 
and there's got to be sort of a different, somebody is making a different choice. Somebody mm. who packed up and went to... Sacramento. Yeah, or, <laughs> um, and I'm gonna mispronounce, it's, it's Nevada. From people right. from Nevada are really, yeah, it's Nevada. Nevada. You know, somebody who went to Nevada or somebody who went to uh, Utah and this woman who's living in this trailer. It's like for some people that may be, you know, it's worth it to her to be in that sure. place yeah. um, to live in a trailer. So I would want to know that. Um, what she talked about with the city council people, and this is one of those things that, you know, when it comes to local politics, you can only, sometimes you can only figure this out in retrospect is, why did that person change their mind? Did somebody give them a donation of some kind? Are the people who are on the city council now the same people who were on the council when these decisions were made? Um, and if you come to uh, a place because Google is there, maybe you have a different opinion than the people who, you know, this was their home and Google came in and changed everything. So I would want to hear a little bit more from sort of the 360. You say that it's about the intersection, so you know who else is intersecting with this woman who's in this trailer, um, whose choices led to this decision. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you. So next we're going to have Heather Pleasant. She's also going to be pitching to Kevin to reveal. Go Heather. All right, so $300. What does that mean to you? Probably nothing right now. Um, but for one student at my university, $300 is the amount of money that stood between her and getting her college degree. For another student at our institution, that amount was $777. For another student, it was $645. So $645, just remember that for a second, I'm gonna come back to that. Um, this is a story about those of us who fall through the cracks um, because we owe relatively little amounts of money toward our education. And I say those of us because when I was thinking about this story, you know, I thought back to my own experience as an undergraduate. I'm older than I look, so just keep that in mind. Um, I worked two jobs. I carried a full load. Um, I survived on ramen noodles and Lucky Charms, and I had a budget per week of $25 for food. Like, no joke, that was my budget. I knew where every dollar of that $25 was going towards. Block of tofu was very important at that point. Um, but you know, I, I kind of thought back to like how I felt in my body when I was in that space, because there was a time where I really needed some money, like really needed it. And I couldn't go to my friends. I couldn't go to my family for a number of reasons. Um, and there's this constant sense of stress, you know, this um, tightness in your chest, um, this question in the back of your mind all the time, like as you're going to classes, as you're going to your job, like what the fuck am I gonna do, right? Um, and the thing about it is, you know, I know that there are people right now in this audience who know exactly what I'm talking about, because we've been there. So, when college students don't have the money they need to finish their education, it's called stopping out. I don't know if you've heard that term before, yeah. Um, and interestingly, you know, this is a problem that a lot of colleges and universities know something about, but for whatever reason, they're just not doing enough about it. They're just not. So this is a story about them, and this almost, to me, incomprehensible situation where they have the ability to do something about it and they're not. So uh, I was talking about the $645. Let me talk with you about Derek. Derek is a student at our university. He is a walk-on to the football team, Roll Tide. Um, hometown boy from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Because he's a walk-on and, you know, 
he's got bills to pay. He takes on extra jobs for a moving company when he can to help pay for his tuition. But he's short every semester. And it could be a relatively small amount of money, 100 bucks for a lab fee. Um, because he's an athlete, he doesn't have a lot of time to work to make up that money. So his mom takes on extra jobs so that she can try to make sure he has money to register. But every semester, he falls short. And when he doesn't have the money that he needs to register for classes, then he's in a situation where he has to register for classes that he doesn't need. And again, this happens every semester. He's not alone. So to me, this is a story about Derek, but it's also a story about what we can and should be doing to address this problem. So for example, um, last year there was a report that was produced about the 2014-15 um, year. And in that year, 300,000 students stopped out. And while colleges and universities aren't really that transparent about the amount of money that they dedicate toward retaining students like Derek, what we do have is a lot of data about how much they lose when students are supposed to graduate but don't. So for example, in 2013, that number that collectively was lost was $16.5 billion. And for public colleges and universities, that averaged out to about 13 million for each institution. So you got like literally billions of dollars being lost on one side. You got Derek needing $645 to finish his education. And ironically, you've got some private donors who want to do things to help. But in the middle, you've also got these people that are in the institution who are on the front lines, you know, people who um, are directors of TRIO programs, for example, um, financial aid officers. These are folks that see these students every semester and can't do anything to help them because, for example, in a mentoring budget, your money is allocated. You can't just drop $300 for a student to register. Um, if you're a financial aid officer, you can't just have a student walk in and say, hey, I need $500. Okay, here you go. It doesn't work like that. Um, Heather, sorry, just to interrupt. Let, let's have a moment for Kevin to have, ask you some questions about the pitch. Yeah, sure. Okay. I think you did a really good job with your pitch, with laying out, um, uh, diving into those characters. Uh, as, as someone who works at an investigative news operation, I really wish I had more people talking about that. I often get just the data. But on the flip side, like I think we need to dig a little bit more into what's driving it. And it sounds like what you want to look at is the what I imagine you think is an underreported story about the people who drop out of college. That's like seems to be the focus. Is that right? To some extent, but it's also about like the disjuncture between the large amounts of money that are spent to recruit and retain students and really the chump change that is required to keep students in school. Like it is so minuscule in the greater scheme of things. And for example, I had a, a student who was um, interviewed for a program that just started at my institution called the Homestretch uh, Completion Grant Program. And the day she was called, she was literally turning in an application to become a flight attendant and she needed three credits to graduate. And she didn't know how she was gonna get it, and she was gonna go be a flight attendant and maybe, you know, hopefully come back the next semester. And so what happens is, you know, this is obviously, you probably can guess, you know, it's underrepresented students, students of color, first gen, Pell Grant eligible, and all of these students are working really hard, but they don't have a bootstrap to pull themselves up by. And we're not doing the things that we really can do to help them, which they don't need another mentoring program. They just need $500. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think you have some really good anecdotes here. Um, there's been a lot of reporting about this type of issue. So what I'd be looking for is like, what's going to differentiate this from other stories that I've heard along the same topic? And also, like something we struggle with a lot 
you know, we, we tell stories about like injustice a lot and what we think about is like, now what? You know, now what am I gonna do with this information? Because you're laying out a very bleak situation right now. Right. And so you need to also be thinking about like, who, you know, it, it, societal problem. This is a societal problem. You know, you can't do a lot with that. So we really need to think about in, in these types of stories, like who are the people that we want to go to and interview and talk to them about like the things that they've done you know, who, who are the people that we can hold accountable for this? And in an issue like this, I know it's really hard because it, there's so many different things, but like, is it the, the way financial aid programs work? Is it um, lack of government funding? Is it not having completion grants, something like that? The other thing that just like uh, made my ear perk up a little bit is it sounds like you might work for an organization that helps kids graduate from college. Nope, What's, I just, I just, um, so, I work in a university, I'm a higher education administrator, but I have colleagues who are pursuing this work. So for example, at the end of this month, I can go to the interviews that will take place to determine whether or not these kids as a group will get, or as individuals actually, will get funding that will allow them to register. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think the things that you want to think about, and it's like easier if you focus in on one place, like it sounds like you're, you're thinking about, um, and then think about the people there and how they tie into the larger system that might be propagating this kind of uh, situation. The other thing that I just have to say is like someone who's not a millennial is that this has been going on for a really long time. Um, I graduated college in 1991, and the people that I went to college with face the same sorts of issues. And a lot of times when you hear pitches, people are presenting them like this is a brand new problem. And there are new aspects to it. Things change all the time. But I think you just have to have, um, you need to take the history into account that this isn't a new phenomenon. This is something that, um, you know, maybe it is worse, maybe it's not, but you really need to put it into that perspective because otherwise, like, you're going to lose credibility with the story. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Heather. We are moving along. We're gonna have some time for some questions at the end of this panel. But let's, let's keep on going. Um, Nila Elel. Here she goes. We are going to be pitching now to um, Pineapple Street Media. Um, Nila is a writer, a multimedia storyteller. Her work and passion is finding stories, creating experiences, and emotional connections. Her work has won awards at Sundance Film Festival and the LA Film Festival, and pitching Pineapple Street Women of the Hour with yes. Nina Dunham. Thank you. Um, um, yeah, this is a pitch for the mother theme. Um, and I'm gonna play some tape right at the beginning. Um, this is Lee Bailey. She learned how to be strong from her mother, and um, this is a little bit of tape of her talking about her mother. Dad walking down the sidewalk, if white people were coming, my dad moved us out to the street so they could pass, which would infuriate my mom. And uh, if we were walking with my mom, then we all passed on the sidewalk. And she just had that way about her. I grew up in the South, in New Orleans, under strict segregation, one of eight children. My dad worked in a factory, and my mom was a housekeeper, which she hated. She hated it. And in the South, in New Orleans back then, at a certain income level, whites and blacks lived in the same block, next door to each other. We may not have associated so in the very next block from our house, there was a policeman and his son. They were both policemen. I remember to this day, his name was Cal, the older man. I didn't know what his son's name was. So Cal and his son, when they were off duty, would walk past our house and go to the bar. And usually they'd come back a little bit tipsy. So we had tricycles that we rode on the sidewalk. So this particular day, Cal and his son get out of the bar. They're going to walk our block and go to their block. But for whatever reason, Cal, the dad, said, get off the sidewalk with those bikes. My mom was out the door in five seconds. They will not get off the sidewalk. And you can't make them get off the sidewalk. 
and they went their way. My dad was in the house. And he told my mom, you know what's going to happen? They're going to come board up this house and throw kerosene on it and burn us all up to death. My mother said, we'll let them. Um, so that's Lee Bailey. She ended up becoming the first woman bus driver in Los Angeles after World War II. She worked her way up to first division manager, first woman division manager. She basically had was the first woman to have almost every single job in LA Metro um, up to um, director of transportation when she retired. And she faced, I mean, so much sexual harassment, so much racial harassment, both on the bus and also in the office with the people she worked with. And she just persevered. She is so strong. And now she's in her 70s and she told me her biggest regret in life is that she never got to tell her mother what an inspiration she was to her. And she never even really realized it at the time. And I think those of us who are strong women and have strong mothers often don't appreciate our strong mothers until we have, you know, sort of the past to think about. Um, and so I got really inspired actually in the panel before this, the uh, um, I'm no one's source. And what I wanna do with this story now is allow Lee to write like a love letter to her mother about how much she meant to her. And in it, I see she tells these really beautiful evocative stories about her childhood in the segregated South. I mean, her mom stood up to police brutality in the 40s when like you didn't do that sort of thing, you know? Um, I mean, you still don't do it that much now either. It's still very dangerous, but it was very dangerous back then. Um, and then, you know, just also allowing her to sort of tell this story. Um, I really liked the idea of getting your source to be part of a collaborative process. Um, and I just, I think she's got, I see this as definitely non-narrated um, story and she has such a, um, I think just a wonderful voice for Women of the Hour. It's one of my favorite podcasts and I just like, at the minute I interviewed her, which was actually a year ago, I was like, this woman needs to be talking to this audience, so. That's the pitch. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like so nervous for some reason. <laughs> like my voice is shaking. Oh, thanks. Okay. You did great, and I I also get really nervous sitting on stages. So it's both of us. Um, she sounds really interesting and great. Uh, what are you thinking a length the length of this piece would be? Um, maybe like I don't like eight minutes, maybe. Okay. Um, I really like her voice a lot. Uh, I was I would think like that maybe like three minutes, and here's why. So first of all, if you're gonna have her write a letter, mm -hmm. it's hard for me to like listen to something being read for more than a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and I I don't know. I just like unless there's something else incorporated in it. It's just I'm not wild about hearing like essay type things, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I could see it just as like, I mean, Women of the Hour, it's a lot of, for people who haven't heard it, it's a lot of these kind of little like vignettes into women's lives and um, not everything necessarily has a beginning, middle and end. It's really pretty character driven and she sounds amazing and I love that she was like the first woman to do a lot of things. That's very Women of the Hour-y too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would, I mean, I would totally take something like this. Uh, as maybe a short piece, possibly even just, I mean, what you have here sounds really good, and I don't know that she has to write a letter and read that, but I'm, I'm interested to hear that. I think you could turn whatever you have into a non-narrated piece uh, pretty easily and maybe do another interview. Yeah, actually, I could definitely do that, too. Cool. And then um, we have two more producers of the show in the audience, and I think Barry seems to maybe have something to add. Oh, and you have to speak into that microphone. It's yeah. okay, I'll just do it. Okay. Um, so uh, I really, I also really like it. And like Jenna said, ours are, our stories are super character driven. And uh, she gives so many descriptive images and that's She's just like spot on for be us. Beautiful it's storyteller. So yeah. It sounds like the letter thing was a newer idea. Yeah. Okay. So it's an hour old. Yeah. Okay. Like. Yeah. So I was going to say, <laughs> rather than maybe like actually having her write a letter, because that's not quite what we would want, but having... Maybe if there is a specific story of her life 
um, in her job as like this, you know, first of all of these things in transportation that her mother directly inspired, mm -hmm. whether that's in tape you possibly already have or in a new interview you do with her. I think that in and of itself would be a love letter to her mom, mm -hmm. um, just through like scene by like not necessarily scene by scene, but even if that's how you want to inter do the interview to mm -hmm. to see how in her actions and in this story that she tells her mom influenced and inspired her. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is something that, unless Jenna thinks otherwise. No, I totally yeah. agree. You said would it way be, better than I ever could. <laughs> would be, uh, that sounds great. I, li great. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great character, great okay. pitch. Cool. Nice yeah. pitch Thank you. In. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, send, send us an email. Barry, you're sitting next to Barry so she can tell you how. <laughs> What a coincidence. Um, great. We're going to move on to Angela Sorakan La Cheguita. Angela is an audio artist who explores the intersections of love, cultural identity, and the rights of women who love women around the world. As the host and producer of Lesbianist Podcast, she is often on the road, but her home base is in San Francisco. And Angela is pitching Women of the Hour with Lena Dunham to Jenna again. Hi, testing, testing, okay. Uh, this is for the theme of friendship that you were requesting pitches for. Um, so the story's about me and my best friend, Jay. Uh, Jay happens to also be the first woman who I ever messed around with back when we were in high school. Uh, Jay's a hardline Christian who to this day believes that homosexuality is a sin. So for the past 15 years or so of our friendship, um, I've actually listened time and time again as she falls in love with one girl after the other but always ends the relationship in the name of Jesus. Uh, she thinks these girls, women, are people who um, she should admire as friends, but it's always been hard for her to not cross that friendship uh, boundary. Um, in this story, I'm going to talk to Jay uh, as someone who I used to love, but who I continue to love as a friend. Uh, we talk about our high school experiences together a bit, and we also talk about the core differences in our beliefs that somehow don't stop us from continuing to be friends. Uh, and just to give you a little more reference, uh, back when we were in high school, the only other thing I ever heard about lesbians was when two girls got kicked off of the basketball team for getting caught kissing in the locker room. Um, ironically, I didn't realize I was a lesbian at the time. Uh, it never occurred to me to date a boy, but I really clung on to Jay, and we would talk about our dynamic openly. Uh, we would say that Jay was like Frodo from Lord of the Rings, and I was like Sam, this loyal sidekick that like never left her side. Um, in retrospect, I realized that I was in love with Jay, but she actually was never in love with me. Uh, for her, it was more about experimentation. Uh, so 15 years later, out of the blue one day, Jay contacts me and said that she wants me to interview her for my podcast. Uh, I was surprised because we haven't actually talked much about our messing around days, uh, let alone to the public. And I was also surprised because she is a Christian who believes that homosexuality is a sin. So I didn't know why she'd want to talk to me about it. But she said that she wants to apologize to me for all that she's put me through. And it turns out she thinks she might be partly responsible for me being a lesbian. Oh. <laughs> Play the clip. <laughs> and we're going to hear some sound. So guess in hindsight it was an experimental relationship. Would you say that in high school we messed around a bit? Yes. I mean, that's a very direct question, but I guess so. Yes, we did. Do you think that you turned me into a lesbian? I don't know. That's something I've uh I believe I influenced you in that path definitely. I mean, I can't say what would have happened if we never did anything. But uh, I hate to think that, you know, I pushed you into that or helped influence you into that path. I've, I've wondered that. But um, I can't blanket that with a, I, that I made you become a lesbian or whatever. But uh, I believe I definitely influenced that. Would you rather me be straight? I'd rather you live for the Lord. All right. Can you tell me about some of the relationships you've had? Uh, they've been rocky. They've been, like, the parts that kept me coming back to them is just because I really love women. I love making a woman feel like a woman. 
And I love, actually, I really just love uplifting women. I love the emotion of women, you know, uh, the softness of a woman. Would you consider yourself a lesbian? Um, I, I mean, I guess. You, I mean, if, if you want to, yeah, sure. No, not now. <laughs> I never, okay, this is where my views always came into place. I consider myself a child of God who never utilized the power to overcome that stronghold. I believe it's a stronghold because I don't believe God agrees with the lifestyle. The lifestyle. That's what you call it, the lifestyle? Yeah. The lifestyle of lesbianism. It's nice when one's high school turmoil uh, can be clapped at later. <laughs> Jay is gay, is what I... I'm sorry, Jay, but wow. Very gay. <laughs> I love how she lists, like... <laughs> love how she lists everything, like, beautiful and sexy about women. Um, <laughs> and she's... Yeah, whatever. That's... It's fascinating. It's also like, it's interesting because it doesn't, it feels like she might be in the middle of something. Like it doesn't feel, it feels like she is in this weird kind of denial that I haven't heard before where um, like it's definitely a unique kind of denial. And part of me wonders like if you, like I feel like this story would be super amazing if you tracked her for like the next five years and continue to have these conversations (laughs) because something's got to give um and like i i would be really curious to see where she's headed in a way yeah Yeah. um but i really it's definitely i really like it it's really fascinating it was funny it's like a very unique perspective on this stuff um and i think we would just have to like figure out a way to frame it so that our audience doesn't think that we're like saying that you should not go with I know yeah. yeah there's actually this moment in the tape where um you know she says she would hate to influence someone to be gay as she as she mentioned and I tell her later well I would hate for to influence someone you know to think along the lines of how you think yeah um well that's an, I think that's an important part mm-hmm. to include and there's this. a little more tape involved too if you know yeah and then having I, I would say you know if we were to do something with this I'd want to have like a good intro and outro from you so that we know it's from your perspective and not from a Christian don't be gay I would I would approve of that <laughs> um do you have any ex- additional notes not yet no how long do you imagine the people... Oh, sorry, I forgot. I asked, I, I asked if, if it had gone out on her show already. Um, and how long do you imagine this going? How long did you interview her for? Well, the whole interview is, is about an hour. Cool. Um, lots of it's not usable. I got a little angry at one point. Um, Anchor's good on tape. Good. <laughs> yeah. Don't cut that I can out talk yet. about it in a narrative way, maybe, but... Um, so I, I was doing this with six minutes in mind because that's what I was told um, would probably be a good time to shoot for. If it could be a little longer, that'd be cool, but I understand if it couldn't be. Yeah, no, I want to hear the tape, but that's, that's a good time. Do you, you want to ask or say anything, Jess? This is another producer, Jess. Hi, uh, I would just sort of agree with Jenna and with Barry, just saying that like we'd want to frame it in sort of a judgment free or let the audience make their own judgment call um, and also frame it a way to make the audience feel okay with the discomfort if even if that's just like yep I don't really know what what she thinks even though she just said or what the what the truth is but just making everyone feel like we're we're okay with feeling unsettled mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it's, it's great tape I loved listening to it and I think that it's a it's a yes from us it's awesome thank you it's awesome yeah. <laughs> thank you Nice. So we're going to keep going. Um, We're going to move on to Lynn Rosenthal. Lynn is going to be pitching to Alicia Montgomery. Um, You ready, Lynn? Okay. Um, 
In 2007, Army Captain Patrick Horan was on a mission in Iraq. He took a bullet to the head from a sniper, lost a big part of his brain, and no one thought he would survive. He did. No one thought he would speak again, and he didn't for three years. But we're going to hear from Pat. I had to do exercise couple times a week you know I come here to, and um, do some other stuff using my brain and it's working I talk better than I was uh, six years ago when I came here and so it's just I think the brain it doesn't really want to quit amen to that amen to that so um, Pat's right and he's reflecting uh, new science uh, we know now that the brain can reorganize itself but our healthcare system is still operating on old brain science. So that the expectation is you will improve for about six months, then you'll level off, then your progress will stop. So very common experience is you are having a, a therapy session and your therapist tells you, I'm really sorry, but the insurance company isn't gonna pay for any more sessions. And Pat was lucky because he found a place called the Stroke Comeback Center in Vienna, Virginia. They step away from the healthcare business and they, it's fee for service, there's a sliding scale, and they don't turn away anybody if they can't pay. So Pat, that, out, that tape was outtake from a podcast that Pat and five other survivors make at the comeback center and they really enjoy making the podcast because it's one of the few times in their lives when they are helping other people they're not being helped so um, Pat's speech therapist Melissa Richmond is the next piece of tape I want you to play all of our members want to help the next survivor and I think they recognize how lucky they are and that they have a community here and that many stroke survivors are very isolated. I mean, it doesn't have to be that you're out in the middle of Idaho somewhere. There are many, many people, uh, say in Washington, D.C., who are in these buildings that have, um, you know, you're on a third floor walk up. So Someone will get you up there, but they're not getting you down every day. So you're very, very isolated. So in this country, there are 2 million survivors. In Washington, D.C., we have 300,000. Um, we have a higher percentage because we have a large African-American population. African-American people are two times as likely to have stroke. And we have a large um, vet population. So the good news is that the Stroke Center is going to be opening a second facility in Maryland in, in 2018. So I think it's a really good time to tell the story. I'd love to tell it with WAMU because those are the people who need to hear it and those are the people we can help. Wow. Um, you know, I know, how much tape do you have? I have. Bet you have a ton. I have <laughs> a lot of tape. There's the 22nd episode of the podcast just came out. Mm -hmm. But I also have a lot of interviews um, that I've done because I've been spending a lot of time at the center. I think that there is something that I think that there is a compelling story, at least one, in this pitch. What I think you have to do is choose it. What I'm hearing, because it's like, you've got this really compelling character in this combat survivor. And this experience of people coming back and, and the whole experience of surviving sort of a traumatic injury um, is underreported because it's like somebody's dead or somebody's not. And you know, you talk about Washington DC and the surrounding area, there's a whole, <laughs> That's a story too, which is what happens to people who are injured by gunfire, um, 
but you know they have to live their lives with a disability and how do they get treatment and where do they find community and all this kind of thing. And WAMU is starting an initiative. Oh wait, I don't know. Yeah, I think that this is public. <laughs> okay, <laughs> whoops. Um, WAMU is starting um, in the spring. It's, it's starting right now to pull it together a project about sort of the impact of guns in American communities. And so this sounds like uh, there could be a thread here that works for that conversation. But, you know, you've got this wonderful place, you know, the center. What is the center's story? Who started it? Did the person have a, uh, someone, a loved one who survived one of these injuries? Where does it get its funding from? How is it expanding? And you could, you know, make that the sort of the main character of your story. Or you could make this combat guy, this, this survivor, the center of your story. Or you could make the brain injury or stroke survivor community the center of your story. Or you could make the discussion about availability of health care um, and treatment for this the center of your story. But you can't make all of those <laughs> things the center of your story. And sometimes, you know, the toughest thing when you have a really compelling um, story is that you know you can't have five main characters you don't want it to turn into sort of the radio equi equivalent of a Russian novel where there are more characters than you can keep up with so it's like if you you know if there were one portion of the story where the person's voice was most compelling it's like the podcast that's another that's another thing that you could have as the centerpiece of the story you have to pick one you have to pick one for the story, and maybe you do something separate on uh, sort of a digital treatment of it that's, that's about a different aspect of the story, but you, you just have to make choices. I think that, that there's a story in there, you just have to choose it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Thanks. I, oh, should, should, go ahead. I mean, okay, sorry, unless we have to end, but um, I just had a comment for you. I, to me, what the most interesting parts were this man's personal story. Um, and also when you mentioned kind of the, I don't know if it was the VA's medical science or, you know, like the VA's like brain medical science is behind where it should be and it's impacting people like this guy. Um, I could totally hear that as like a, you know, six minute all things considered piece is kind of like, here's this one, one man's story, but the VA is not equipped to deal with these kinds of injuries um, and kind of going into some of the science around that. I think that that story would be really interesting. Thanks, Lynn. We have a couple more minutes, and I wanted to open it up to some questions, if anyone had any. Um, and in the meantime, I was just curious, Kevin, like what actually makes a reveal story? Um. Well, first of all, both of the pitches, I, I'd love to talk, keep, like, we should email, because I don't think it's quite there for a reveal story yet, but I do think both of them have aspects of the potential for a reveal story. And we have a really super rigorous pitch process. Um, we have this form online, and then you do a video conference if we all agree that we want to see it, and then we have, like, a million follow-up questions, and then we want to look at your data. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. But um, the things that we're looking for on Reveal is obviously we want stories that have um, undercovered stories or stories that haven't been covered yet. We, we want investigative findings. We want to know, like, what, what did you find out that nobody else knows? And then, of course, you know, what I was saying when, when you made your pitch, Heather, is that, like, often we get that part of it, but then we don't get the part where it, like, matters to anyone. So it's like... Uh, we spend a lot of time like working with people to develop pitches so that we can find out who the characters are. And a lot of the times what people want to do is like make the victims the characters. And it's really like hard not to get them to do that. So our stories, um, we, we want to, yeah, definitely you have to have the investigative findings in the story. Uh, you have to have strong characters, and we like to take you places. Like, we rely on a lot of field tape. Um, we like to go into different communities around the country or around the world. 
Um, I think it's something like a lot of shows do go into the field, but it, it, you know, almost every one of our episodes just has like a ton of field tape that takes you places. So that's one thing that we try to do to differentiate it. Um, and then we also like to hold people accountable, which is what I was saying. And we like that to come across in the interview process. So it's, you know, Al does it in his interviews, but then when we have reporters go in the field, we want to hear the same thing. We want to hear you questioning people and then hearing what they say and then asking another question. And like, don't let them get away with it. And we have some really good examples. We have one reporter, Jennifer Gollin. She worked with our producer, Stan Alcorn, on the story. And she was interviewing the part of the Navy that decides on shipbuilding contracts. And what's so crazy is they were giving contracts to companies that had serious OSHA fines for um, safety viola violations. And their rationale was sort of like, but we're not, we're not OSHA. We're not in charge of that part of it. So then they were giving contracts to companies with horrible safety, you know, backgrounds. So she gets them on the phone, and it was amazing that the Navy talked to us, first of all. And then she, there's like two or three people on, on there, and they're like, every now and then they'd be like, can, you, can, can we go off the record for a second? She's like, oh, yeah, sure, we can go off the record. Then you hear, like, a little pause. And then she's, she comes on the tape. She goes, they did that a few times. Or else then they'd, you know, they'd, they'd backpedal constantly. And letting that play out for people, that's when, you know, people say, show, don't tell. That's showing, not telling. Like, something's happening there in the tape. And a lot of times, especially if you're working with a print reporter, what they'll do is say, the Navy had no comment. Or, like, this, they go to the last thing they said, which was a coherent thing, mm -hmm. and they give that to you. But, like, listening to that struggle, like, we don't want to embarrass them, but we wanted to show that they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Yeah. And so that came through in that tape. So, so those are the kinds of things we're looking for in a reveal story. And I don't know, Jenna or Alicia, like what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that people make when pitching? Um, again, and you know, is trying to figure out who the villain is. There is a hero, I mean, because, you know, when you construct a narrative, you have a hero and you have supporting characters and you have an adversary and you have, you know, the, the struggle, the dramatic arc, and I know that it's important for us to be engaging and all that stuff helps, helps you be engaging. But a lot of the time there uh, is a pretty obvious question that does not get asked when you cast people as heroes and villains. I'm gonna do sort of a, you know, we have, uh, WAMU has a terrific reporter um, uh, who does work around sort of police corruption. And there's this jump out squad in Washington and these are cops who come in and they go into primarily, you know, black neighborhoods and they harass teenagers and, you know, uh, throw them up against the wall and say, hey, you know, do you have guns? And teenagers say no. And if they say yes, then they're in trouble and all this kind of stuff. Um, and there is a very easy story to tell there, which is that these cops are bad people and this community feels harassed and these guys should stop doing this. And that is an element of the story, but in a situation like that, if there are teenagers walking around with guns, it could be that the people in that neighborhood, and depending on whether you're a teenager or you're an elderly person, if you're an elderly person who lives on the corner and is afraid to come out, and you remember, and I think that this isn't just a black thing, but you know, the, you, if you talk to your grandparents, they remember when everything was better, <laughs> and it was years before you were born, and the crummy values that your generation has took over. You know, it's like, I used to be able to walk this neighborhood at all hours of the day and night, and now these ruffians are out here shooting each other, and blah, 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 blah. And it's not that, you know, you want to have your story endorsing people getting shot, being, uh, having their rights violated, but you want to t tell the full story. And in a situation like where you have um, the healthcare, you know, this guy 
Um, and the Navy, not the Navy, because that's your story, <laughs> but the VA doesn't spend the money on the, uh, the treatment for this guy. Well, you know, that's, they're the villains in that piece, but if it costs a million dollars to get this guy from a place where he can speak in three word sentences to get him to where he can speak in five word sentences, but it also takes a million dollars to get somebody from not speaking at all to speaking a little bit, you know, it's like, so if they're spending that money on him, then they're not spending it over here. Or, you know, and this is the, the college thing. I did the, um, the objectivity panel, and this college issue, who's, who goes and who graduates, is a big one for me in public radio, which is that 60% of, more than 60% of American adults don't have a college degree. You know, because of where we are in the culture, a lot of us are from that place where Everybody gets to go to college, and some great catastrophe has to happen um, for you not to be able to finish it. But if you put that in context, it's like, why don't just say it's terrible that this person can't finish college because they don't have $300. It's like, if you are in the business of making the world a better place, that $300 could be spent there, or that $300 could be spent K through 12, which everybody goes through, and there are a lot of kids who go through K through 12 and come out the other side without being functionally literate, without you know being able to find a job. And in addition to making the case of why it's important for this group of folks to finish college, you just have to make sure that you're putting it in the context of the larger picture. Right. Yeah. Right. So n the the good guys and versus the bad guys thing to me is doesn't always work. Yeah. yeah. It, it it I mean it works on reveal because you're <laughs> uh, a lot more often because they're like tracking yeah. reg actual bad guys, but a lot of this is about resource allocation and whether somebody's a good guy or a bad guy depends on what you think um, is the the most worthy target of the resources. Right. Jenna, what about you? What do you think um, is... People's pitches are almost always too long. Uh, if you're sitting around getting pitches all day, you want them to be very short. Um, they often don't really have a story. They're more about a character, um, which works sometimes for something like a Women of the Hour, but doesn't work for a lot of things. <laughs> um, pitch real stories, that's always good. And um, I also, I'm always curious to know who the audience is, like who the person sees the audience being, and uh, why this, like why this would interest an audience, basically. Yeah. And I think one of the things that that stands out for me when receiving pitches is uh, listen to the shows that you're pitching. Yes, it's so <laughs> right? important. Listen to what you're pitching to, and um, and really try to understand, you know. Who you're pitching? I think it's 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 really incredible how many times you can get pitches that just aren't for your show at all. That are for a completely different show, but they are not for your show at all. Um, yeah, we're actually going to be wrapping up now, and I actually wanted to give a huge round of applause to all these amazing producers. Such great work, um, and they worked so hard on these pitches, refining, tweaking, doing all sorts of things to them. And I'm just, I'm just really proud of you guys. I'm very happy that you guys came up and showed up and, and really represented. And I actually have a little gift for you guys, which is called The Five Sermons. It's a little book, a five-minute read by Jay Allison. Um, and Jay Allison is a radio producer. Uh, he has been around. He is uh, the founder of The Moth. He's a co-founder of AIR, uh, PRX, um, and he founded the Transom Storytelling Workshop. And he's made pieces that have been on shows like All Things Considered on NPR. He's uh, producing Frontline right now. He couldn't make it to the festival, but I asked him, I said, what would you say to some of these people that are you know, just pitching for the first time and, and getting into this? Um, and you know, Third Coast. You know, he's saying Third Coast is all about uh, teaching you like structure, 
but also teaching you how to be unstructured. So I just wanted to read a little sermon for y'all before we leave. So don't ask permission. You want to get on the air, be on a show, have your story out there, but as you make your pitches, keep something precious in reserve and don't pitch it. Just make it. Don't even really plan it or predict what the narrative or sound will be. Just follow it and see what happens. The joy of this work is the exploration and discovery, both of which are antithetical to pitching, which even for the best of us can inadvertently cripple the imagination by determining your trip before you walk it. Walk in the dark, microphone extended, and don't ask permission. I will leave you with that. Happy pitching, everybody. Thanks for coming.